Thanks, all. Well, it's the top of the hour, so we're going to get uh, started. So welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Global Math Department. My name is Lee Natero, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we're going to be hearing from Chase Orton about deliberate practice, how math teachers can close the professional development gap. So I know some of you have already been telling us where you are right now, but if you could also introduce us uh, to us, telling us what you teach and where you teach and what your Twitter handle is, if you have one. So if you could introduce yourself in the chat, I know some people have already shared their location, but if you could share your teaching situation as well, that would be great. Thanks for sharing that, Cheryl. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Amy. So before I introduce our speaker, let me explain how these meetings work. These meetings are recorded and are available within 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you would use the same URL you used to get here tonight. The global math community prides itself on being friendly and supportive. The chat room is available for topical or general conversation throughout the meeting. I'll catch your questions for the presenter, so don't worry that the presenter won't notice your questions in the chatter. Uh, tonight, our speaker is Chase Orton. Chase is a math teacher, coach, facilitator, speaker, and consultant with over 20 years of experience working with students and teachers in classrooms. He's passionate about building productive, inspiring, engaging math classrooms and has conducted over 100 lesson studies with K-12 math teachers and continues to work to empower teachers in districts throughout California. Chase is the lead author of MathLinks, a comprehensive math curriculum for middle school students. In addition to speaking and sharing his work at conferences nationally, he writes about his ideas and invites your collaboration at www.chaseorton.com. Uh, so I will now turn the presentation over to Chase. Great. Good evening, good morning, uh, good day to you, wherever you are. Thank you for taking the time to geek out with me. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about deliberate practice and how that can help us uh, as math teachers to close the professional development gap. First of all, I, know, I hope you and yours are healthy and well these days. Um, I mean that not just physically, but emotionally, mentally too. I don't, I don't know about you, but I've been missing and craving some human connection. And I'm so grateful, really, truly grateful um, to be here with you tonight. And second, I know COVID-19 is on a lot of our minds, not only because it impacts our personal lives, but also is, is, is impacting our professional lives so much. And so tonight, I'm going to ask us to kind of take a break from COVID. And, and I know many of us are approaching um, the limits of our bandwidth. And so I invite us to take a big, deep collective breath and remind ourselves that this pandemic isn't forever and that our schools are gonna reopen. And when they do, we're, not, we're gonna face not just the same challenges that we were facing in March when we were still in our classrooms, but also a new set of challenges too, as we emerge from this once in a generation kind of event. Life is going to be different for a while, especially for our students, and their needs are going to change, and our needs as math teachers are going to change. And I want us to think about how we navigate those changes once in-person schooling gets back underway in our work here tonight. If you're currently doing distance learning as a teacher, I'm not offering any magic bullets tonight. I do think that what we explore 
can be helpful in all of our professional settings, including the one that we're currently in. And so I'm hoping that everybody here finds some value. Um, but I really want us to be thinking about how we can prepare ourselves for work life once we emerge from this pandemic. Um, I'm a big fan of the Freakonomics podcast. I've got some ideas tonight. I assure you the best idea I have is that this podcast is worth listening to. Um, and Stephen Dubner uh, has a great interview question. In episode 379, um, he asks, uh, entitled, How to Change Your Mind. He begins an interview by, by asking this following prompt, which is similar to the one that we just had on the screen. And so um, I want us to kind of change it so we can focus on um, the, the teaching and learning of mathematics. And so if you haven't already, take a moment and think about this prompt. Thank you for those that had some vulnerability sharing your, your, your comments in there. Feel free to add to it. Um, and I just kind of uh, will come back to this question uh, a little bit later um, in this webinar. But for now, I just want us to kind of think about what does it take to change our mind? And I hope that we can agree on three things. Uh, one, we have to feel the frustration. We have to feel the frustration that what we're doing isn't really working. Um, and we also have to have a willingness to express some vulnerability and admit that we're wrong. And um, sometimes that takes a lot of courage, right? Like changing minds is often viewed as a sign of weakness these days, not of strength. And it's, it's a really unproductive mindset for any sort of growth and learning. So for us to learn, for us to grow, we have to have some vulnerability and willingness to admit that we're wrong. And lastly, I think the third thing we need to change our mind is, is some data that's usually given to us through a lived experience, something that shifts our perspective in a way that shifts our, our own understanding of us, our teaching, our students, or our work. Um, and we had to see it differently. And so this is what I'm hoping to tap into tonight, a little bit of frustration that some of us might be feeling around professional development um, and a willingness to to be vulnerable and, and talk about maybe some of the things that we've been wrong about. And I'm hoping that I can shift your perspective and, and really shift your perspective about what professional development can and should look like for, for math teachers. Um, and so I wanna to begin tonight uh, with a confession because I wanna model some vulnerability for you. Um, and my confession is this, uh, math lessons didn't always work for all of my students. Despite my best efforts, I've always struggled to meet the needs of all my students while also moving learning forward for the whole class and also doing that at the pace of school, right? Like the pace of school never seemed to match the pace of my bell schedule and the pace of the student learning and the pace on, that I had in this pacing plan around my assessment, assessment calendar. And so I always find myself facing this persistent dilemma. How do I get better at moving learning forward for all my students when they're all in different places? And I don't mean just academic places, right? But the social and the emotional places as well. How do I balance the need of the individual with the needs of the group? And I was deeply frustrated by this. Like it bothered me because some of my students were not having positive learning experiences in my classroom. And early in my teaching career, like my first teaching gig, it was very much a sink or swim kind of a thing. And I remember always teaching behind my closed classroom door. And I remember like feeling shame because I didn't have this teaching gift, right? Like after all, if I had the teaching gift, all my students would be successful, right? But they weren't. Um, and I felt a lot of shame around that early in my career and a lot of guilt that I wasn't able to meet all the individual needs of my students. And so something that I, I realized is that there's no such thing as the teaching gift. Um, 
And not only that, I'm not alone in my own teaching struggles. Like when I started to open up my classroom door and get into other classrooms, I started to realize that that we were all kind of facing the similar sort of dilemma. And that collectively, like we're asking like, how do we get better at moving learning forward uh, when all of our students are in different places? And I think that this is a, a dilemma that teachers will always face no matter wherever we go in whatever context. And I think it's particularly true in mathematics. Um, uh, where gaps in understanding can be viewed as such a, a debilitating thing for our instruction and, and get an obstacle getting in the way of our teaching. So here's where I need to ask an irreverent question, and I'm borrowing some language from Steve Lineron here. Um, and to say it's irreverent is to say that I need to call out an elephant in the room, and I don't want to come across as being rude or gauche. And let me be clear, when I ask this, I'm not placing any blame on anybody when I ask this question. But with all that we know about effective mathematics teaching practices, why is math class still not working for some students? I know it's a complicated answer. I'm not playing the blame game here. I'm not suggesting it's your fault or my fault or your student's fault. Um, it's not the fault of school or district leaders. And tonight and, and all of my work, I always want to sidestep the blame game because it invites the debates that divide us and it's, and it's not a safe place to change our minds. Instead, I want to focus on, on what we have in common as teachers of mathematics. And I think um, this common dilemma I just mentioned is one of those, but I think something else that we have in common is something called the PD gap. And again, Steve outlined this in a great webinar. You can go check it out. It's on the Global Math Department website, and it's from last November. And Steve talked um, about that professional development is underperforming. It's neither professional nor does it develop and it doesn't lead to any change in teacher instruction. And Steve's not the only one to really call this out. Um, the Teaching Gap came out in 1999 and talked explicitly about how our current culture of teaching, of teacher learning is an obstacle to our work of improving our teaching practice, especially when it comes to math teaching. Hang on, I've got a little Dotson down here that's a little bit trying to get some attention from me. Forgive me, here we go. Um, so not only that, uh, we also are facing improvising here. Uh, uh, we need to have a shift in, in the culture to, to make any sort of meaningful reform, meaningful shifts in the way uh, teaching happens in the math classroom. It can't happen until we make some shifts in the culture of teacher learning. Um, and so tonight, I, I wanna do talk about this PD gap. And I think that the PD that we need to grow our teaching craft does not align with the PD that we're currently being offered. And again, I'm not placing blame here. I'm just calling out something that troubles me, right? Something I'm not trying to solve. Uh, it's something that I am trying to solve. And I'm grateful that you're here with me tonight to talk about it. Um, these are some persistent questions that I've been asking over my teaching career. And essentially, what does it take for us to make meaningful changes in our teaching? And in this talk, I wanna push back on some of the unproductive beliefs that we have about grow, uh, how we grow as teachers and how we grow the teaching of mathematics. And I must admit, my approach may be a bit American because I'm speaking to the specific struggles that I see us, what we do here in, in, in the States in terms of like helping teachers grow. And so um, I think that we have some unproductive beliefs that make it really difficult to answer the first two questions um, and, and therefore figure out a way to close the PD gap as well. And so these are, are my expected outcomes for you tonight. I, I hope you feel empowered to have a deeper understanding um, of the causes and the dynamics of the PD gap. 
Uh, and I want to talk about how we can close out, how we can use this thing called deliberate practice. And I also want to invite you, I want to invite you to take a journey with me um, to professional flourishment. And I'll explain a little bit about what that means. But tonight, I really, the themes that I want to focus on are empowerment, invitation, and focusing on the things that we have uh, in common about our teaching practice. We're going to go in this order pretty much through the webinar, but I do want to kind of take a moment and talk about this made-up word, flourishment. Um, teaching requires a sense of passion for our work, a passion that really needs to be nourished by a feeling that our work matters, that we're adding value to the lives of our students. And when we witness growth in our students, our fulfillment from our work is not just professional. I think it's really deeply personal for a lot of us as teachers. And from that, our energy is renewed with a validated sense of purpose. And then on the flip side, like our teaching struggles, like especially our persistent ones can leave us feeling a little bit personally defeated and a little insecure perhaps about our teaching abilities. Um, we may even have doubts where we, or days where we begin to question whether or not we're, we're cut out for this job. I know I, my, my early career days, I was filled with that, like wondering whether I was ever gonna get better at this stuff. And when we don't get nourishment from our work, we lose our wholeness. And I think that we feel pulled apart, worn down or frustrated. And because our teaching feels so personal to us, we need to have this sense of growing, of progressing, um, of, of getting better. We require, like all people, a belief that we can flourish. And I see Robin pointing out Francis Sue's book, um, Math for Human Flourishing. It's a wonderful book. I encourage you to read it. And yes, I am borrowing that word um, a little bit from him to, to talk about this idea of flourishing and, and how do we do that. So I think a healthy career a teaching career requires a constant state of flourishment, the sense of wholeness where we feel nourished by the impact of our work. We feel like our craft can flourish, um, but achieving and sustainable professional, uh, sustaining professional flourishment as a teacher, especially as a teacher of mathematics, can be really, really challenged given some of the re realities that we face on our professional landscape. Um, in my work, I, I talk a lot about four headwinds, four unproductive beliefs um, that, that exist on our professional landscape as math teachers. And these are the threats to our sense of, of flourishment. They're also the causes, I think, of, of the current PD gap. Um, but I wanna, and I wanna give you a silent moment right now and just read these to yourself and think about what those headwinds might mean to you. And I'm curious, like, do any of them make you nod your head in agreement? Are you facing these in your, in your workplace environment? Just give you a moment to kind of process that. Feel free to comment. We got a pretty full webinar. I'll do my best to fold in the comments as they come through. So I think it's really important to understand why these headwinds exist um, and how they operate. And I wanna unpack them super briefly right now. Um, at least in this country, in the United States, a lot of reform efforts um, are driven from the top down. And certainly for in, in the, the United States, a big turning point was 1983, where under Reagan, the Nation at Risk was, was um, published. It's a, you can find it online. It's a remarkably accessible read, uh, and, and it's really short. And I, I do encourage you to read it because it really set a dire tone about education and the need for education reform in the 1980s, and it continues to this day. Um, and a lot of the claims in there have been refuted, uh, but 
the nation of risk really did two things. It, it set the narrative that schools are failing and that schools need to do better. And it did so, it set an alarm around that, right? Like this is some of the language that came out with the nation of risk that our educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by this rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation and a people. So it really tried to sound the alarm about why schools aren't working and establish a need for um, uh, education reform and, and, and this um, <clears throat> education reform as, as a common expression and, and a norm for all schools. Uh, Nation of Risk also started something else. If schools weren't doing better, they needed to be held accountable for doing better. And so starting under Bush with the No Child Left Behind and continuing with Obama with Race to the Top, what ended up happening is that school accountability got tied to funding, which got tied to student test scores, standardized test scores. Um, and you can see that there establishes focus that data was the most important thing. And this is the word count from um, the ESSA Act, the federal legislation about um, uh, federal legislation for public education. And you can see the word count that 515 times come account accountability and assessment. Yeah, and teaching and learning, we get a measly 22. And so um, uh, this kind of only one data point, but it does suggest that schools doing better means getting students to get right answers on these high stake tests. For the past several decades, all levels of education in America, from superintendents to principals to teachers to students are facing an ever increasing pressure to meet these benchmarks using standardized testing. And in this way, I think that we've gotten to the point that we value data more than we really value the quality of the teaching and the learning and the learning experience for our students in the classroom. And again, I'm not placing blame. I think we've been incentivized to really focus on these because we're valuing what's measured. We're valuing these testing scores. Um, and so 1983 might be a long way to go back, but it really ushered in this sort of era of, of addiction to reform. Um, and it, back in 99, when the teaching gap came out, we were talking about, we we're already aware of this and noting that schools are always in these reform efforts and we see them today, but we're not always necessarily improving our teaching. Uh, John Merrill picks this up. Uh, his book, Addicted to Reform, talks about how we get incentivized to juke the data and start manipulating the data and, and bending, again, worried about data outcomes necessarily than the quality of our teaching. And I recognize that data has a huge place in how we measure that, but our myopic focus here on, on using standardized testing uh, prevents us from really ask, asking two very essential questions um, for our work. What does good math teaching look like? And how do we more effectively improve our crafting? Right. The goal of improving test scores has left math teachers with no like coherent pathway for us to get better, mostly because um, math scores are never going to tell us how to how to improve our teaching abilities. And so um, I think that this kind of leads us into the other two headwinds that I want to talk about briefly. Um, this idea that belief in that that teaching is a gift and and the fact that we have to work in silos. Um, I think right now, math education has a massive nomenclature problem and it's debilitating our growth. In our work, we use jargon like this that you see on your screen. And these are important ideas with good intentions. They are valuable. I'm not critiquing them at all. And if you ask a room full of math teachers and education leaders what a productive math classroom looks, sound, and feels like, you'll probably hear some of the same language. But are we really clear on what we're talking about? 
Do we have a common understanding of what these words even mean or what good math teaching and productive math classrooms can actually look like? And I think that there's some room to improve there. And I think we need to, because without this clarity, we don't know where we're going and we risk becoming lost in something that uh, I like to call the fog of better, uh, a place where we have plenty of jargon, right? But we lack the focus and the clarity and the direction necessary to engage in, in our practice in a way that can help us grow our teaching craft. Um, I also think, um, I invite you to read this quote uh, to yourself, because I need to take a little taste of water here. And so I think three decades of ed reform efforts in this country, no matter how well-intentioned, have missed the mark because they fail to consider the most important variable in student learning. And that's the quality of our teaching. The educational system, at least in this country, has done a poor job of helping math teachers cultivate their teaching craft over the years. And it's failed to accurately assess and understand and incorporate our professional learning needs. And I think year after year, we're finding ourselves in a system that's actively working against our ability to achieve and sustain the sense of professional flourishment. And it's gotten to the point that I'm, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that many math teachers feel discouraged and some may even feel disheartened about their professional future and their sense of efficacy, um, mostly because we're not left with a coherent pathway for, for improving our teaching. Um, and again, I'm not placing blame here. This is nobody's fault. Our failures are really, um, uh, uh, about are systemic and not necessarily um, individual. And so coming back to, to these um, expected outcomes, um, I hope you feel like you have a deeper understanding of some of the causes and the dynamics as I see them um, that are creating this PD gap. And uh, what I wanna talk a little bit about now is how to close that gap. Um, and so I wanna do that by, uh, hang on a second. Um, uh, so I think that these are the headwinds that uh, causes about what we get wrong about PD. Um, but I think they also can help us see us how we need to move forward on a journey. And so I also talk about four guiding principles in my work. I think that cultural change must come from the bottom up. We need to measure what we value. I think that teaching is a craft we can improve and seek, seek new vantage. And uh, I'm gonna keep these up here. This shows both the headwinds and the guiding principles back to back or side to side. And I invite you just to kind of digest those for yourself. Um, I'm curious what you notice and what you wonder. And uh, take a moment to read those over for yourself. Yeah, I see some notes about comment. Uh, I, I'm talking about the data that's coming from standardized test scores. I work in schools where their number one goal, their number one mandate, smarter balanced test scores need to go up. That's their primary goal. And they focus on attendance and they focus on some other metrics as well. So I'm not necessarily arguing against the use of data by any means. I'm saying that the top-down reform efforts using standardized test data is not necessarily conducive to our ability to teach in a way that we will find fulfilling. So hopefully you've had a chance to, to digest those um, 
guiding principles. Uh, so I, I believe that change, if change is going to come, if ed reform is going to happen in math education, it's going to come from us. It's going to come from the teachers of mathematics. And we must seek our own pathway for ourselves. Uh, and I'll talk about, I'm offering you um, my ideas on a pathway and how we can do that later in, our, in this webinar. Uh, we also need to get clear about what, what we value and, and then seek ways to measure that instead of valuing what we measure. And this is borrowing language from John Merrow, who, who wrote that Addicted to Form book as well. And I gave it a night talk about it a couple of years ago. But um, we need to be, get clear about um, what we value most as teachers and finding ways to measure that daily for ourselves and for our students. And I think that we also need to continually realize that teaching is a craft. And like any craft, it can be improved um, with the right kind of practice. But it can only be improved, right, if we have a willingness to admit that we're wrong, right? And remember Dubner's question, what did it take to change your mind? Um, you may believe that teaching isn't a gift, and many of you may not, and that is great. Um, and I think a lot of teachers may, may say that it's not, but I don't necessarily think that that necessarily helps us talk about how teaching is a craft. And so we, I think that we need to be able to embody that, that practice for ourselves. And lastly, um, I talk a lot about the power of seeking vantage and how that can help us change our minds. Uh, and that's about seeing that different perspective uh, that we talk about. And it really, for our work as math teachers, it means leaving the silos of our, of our own classrooms. So these are the things that I think that we must believe and do if we're going to close the PD gap. And this is how I believe that uh, math teachers can best achieve professional flourishment for themselves. It certainly is the backbone of my work, coaching work, is I, tr I try to um, really shift the responsibility for teachers um, to put them at the center of the process and allow them to direct it. And I feel really, really strongly about these principles and their ability to influence some cultural change. Uh, I am um, currently writing a book uh, a little bit about this, a lot about this work and about how um, it's a handbook for, to help math teachers so they can achieve professional flourishment for themselves. And it's based on these uh, four principles and it's in this book written by a math teacher for math teachers. Um, and it's got a wordy title. If you don't like wordy titles, I realize that's long. And if you don't like really wordy titles, you're, you're not gonna like the subtitle because there it is, it's got even more words. But I'm trying to be descriptive as possible here with this handbook. And I hope you see the connection between this title and everything that I'm talking about right here um, at, at, and tonight in this webinar. So the purpose of the Math Teacher's Handbook is to empower us to take more control over our professional learning by developing a coherent pathway to kind of help us guide our own professional growth. And this teacher-centered approach to PD is how we, the math teachers, I think will bring about meaningful change in math education from the bottom up. And it's my vision is where math teachers everywhere are feeling this collective sense of efficacy about their professional future. So um, if what I've been talking about tonight resonates with you, if you're craving some sense of professional flourishment, then this journey is for you. And if you're experiencing a lot of flourishment already, my hunch is that you know some teachers who might find this journey useful. And maybe you want to consider taking this journey with them. And if you're a coach or a principal, I hope that you use this handbook or view this handbook as a way to help coordinate a book study for your teachers and help them um, coordinate their own professional learning. Because I think it's a, it's, it's a journey that 
any math teacher is going to find very uh, valuable. And it essentially represents everything that um, I've learned about answering these questions about how do we create meaningful shifts in the classroom. And so uh, my plan for the rest of the webinar is to give you an idea of what this book project is about and extend an invitation uh, to you to be a part of this journey. I wanna offer you some activities that you and your colleagues can use to build a, a culture of deliberate practice for yourselves and your colleagues. Uh, we obviously don't have time to go into everything in the book. Uh, at the end of this webinar, I'll post a link so you can get some of these resources now and as they come. Um, and I ask that if you use these activities that you just give me some feedback on how it went and how I can make them better. Um, and before giving those, I need to take a little bit of a quick detour and talk about um, for just a few minutes this phrase, uh, deliberate practice, because I haven't formally defined it yet for you. So I'm going to throw back to my favorite podcast, Freakonomics, only this time we're going to take a look at episode 244. And I reference these Freakonomics because they're easy places for you to consume more information and further your own learning. There are plenty of spaces that you can figure out, uh, learn about this research on deliberate practice. Um, and so I'm just giving a really uh, quick snapshot here. And the phrase deliberate practice comes from the work of Anders Ericsson. And um, he was engaged in the science of peak performance and figuring out really what does it take um, uh, to master, master a skill. And uh, he realized that ex um, experience alone does not lead to improvement. Uh, you may be familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, where he talks about 10,000 hours as being a rough estimate of the time it takes to master something. That's coming from Anders Ericsson's work. Um, but that also doesn't mean that 10,000 hours of just mindless, mindlessly engaged in a skill. It's more than that, right? Deliberate practice is a special kind of practicing. And so uh, 